0: Hello and good afternoon. You're very welcome to join us this evening for this interactive virtual conference on the farm to fork strategy. Today we are asking what does the analysis and data tell us? Now, of course, we are live streaming on LinkedIn, YouTube and Facebook, but you can also tweet us using the hashtag EA Debates. In particular today we're going to look at the farm-to-fork biodiversity strategies which were published in 2020 and have long been looked at in the run-up to publishing that information and that proposal that was the keynote of the European condition. And now, food systems cannot be resilient to things like COVID-19, as we know so well, if they are not sustainable. And so today we're going to talk about that. There have been several reports published around this issue. And we're going to look today at three experts for this scientific dialogue. So we're going to hear from the European Commission's Joint Research Centre. We're going to hear from Wageningen University's research, which is due to be published in October, as well as taking stock of what's happening on the other side of the Atlantic with input from the United States. Department of Agriculture. As always, we welcome your input, so please do use the chat or Q&A functions to send your questions, A tweet along with us and make sure that you put your questions to the panellists in English, please, and as succinctly as possible. If it's to one particular panellist member, do say so, and we'll try to get to as many of them as possible in the next hour and a little bit. So with that, I'm going to welcome to tell us a little bit about the JRC's work. Jean-Pierre Genovesi, who is the Head of Unit of Economics and Agriculture at the Joint Research Center of the European Commission. Thank you very much for joining us. The floor is yours. Tell us what you've been doing.
1: A group of economists, scientists working to support the policymaker in Brussels. So we were asked to, uh, to run a study Uh, about uh, how the common agriculture policy could contribute to some of the targets of the farm-to-fork strategies and biodiversity strategies. And uh, we uh, did our best with our modeling capacity in order to cover uh, the, let's say, the the questions that were at that time uh, in the heads and on the table of uh, the common agriculture policy debates. So uh, let's say that the farm-to-fork is a multidimensional strategy. So, we could only uh, look at four of these dimensions. So, it's like fixing in an hyperspace, fixing all the elements that you cannot cover in the kind of status quo and just looking at what could happen uh, in the assessment of the CEP on the targets that you can cover, which in the case were the reduction of pesticides, uh, reduction of the uh, nitrate success, nitrate success. Uh, the enlargement of the uh, organic farming, and uh, also, uh, let's say, an increased landscape uh, favorable to biodiversity. So these were the the four things we could look at. And uh, that's why uh, I wanted to clarify that our study is not an impact assessment of the whole strategy. Uh, This is coming, it's complex, and as scientists, we are dedicating our time in uh, finding solutions to fill the gaps. Uh, Our study was concentrating on the producer points of view, basically, the farmers, but we miss all the parts in the middle uh, up to the, uh, let's say, the consumer behavior, which is one of the biggest parts uh, uh, lacking in our study. So uh, can we change through the fun to food strategy, consumer diets? So that's a big question. And in which direction are we going? how much they can uh, contribute to have sustainable food systems. The other big gap is about the behavior at global level. Because we uh, made a study in the assumptions that we act Europe's acts alone, which is not really the case, because we know that there are many other uh, agricultural policies around the world looking at sustainability aspects. So altogether, they should, let's say, mm, uh, ideally uh, bring uh, the world to a more sustainable uh, uh, level so i i don't want to take more time and i um i leave the now the floor
0: Thank you, jean for that introduction. It was good of you to come along and join us to set the stage like that uh, with regard to the JRC, because as I introduce our panelists now, we do indeed have your colleague, Jesus Barriero-Hurl, who is the Senior Economist at the Joint Research Centre. Jason Beckman is the Research Agricultural Economist at the Economic Research Service at the USDA. That's the United States Department of Agriculture, and Johan Bremer is a senior researcher on the plant and health market intelligence at Wageningen University Research. Thank you gentlemen all for joining us, Uh, I know some of you have specific presentations to set us out on our discussion today, so Jesus, first let's start with you, the floor is yours.
2: without saying. So we are talking about understanding how the two main flagship initiatives of the EU transition to more sustainable food systems will affect the agricultural sector. As Giampiero mentioned, we also have to take into account how the biggest item of expenditure of the EU, the Common Agricultural Policy, can help to facilitate this transition. Moreover, we need to understand not only what the data tells us, but also what we are asking the data and where this data comes from and what the data doesn't tell us most of what you should, will you will see today focuses on four headline targets that is the reduction of pesticide use especially the most uh, risky pesticides the reduction of nutrient surpluses an increase of land under organic farming and an increase of area under high diversity landscape features if someone reads the strategies in detail, you can see that there's more than 24 interventions affecting the agricultural sector put forward in these strategies. So these four targets have captured all the attention, but are far away from being the full picture of what we are doing. We have actions that help or want to extend broadband to all of our rural areas. We want to foster a change on diets to more sustainable diets and we're also even mentioning changes in taxation of agricultural products so not only the three studies that you will be hearing about today the jrc the usda and crop life through wageningen have focused on this also the other four studies that are out in the public that of Inrae, that one of Koseral and the german cereals association have focused on these targets i have to be give credit here to our American colleagues, who also included into the analysis the reduction of antimicrobials, that it's another one of the targets put forward in the strategies. We also need to take into account that we are using the models that we are most familiar with. And sometimes these models are not fit for purpose to capture all, this idea, all these uh, initiatives. I will come back to this at the end of my statement. As JRC, we, we, we bring forward an analysis based on a model that has a very detailed representation of the EU, both in terms of agricultural primary production and agricultural policy, and a strong agroeconomic base. We also put the, con- the targets into context. And what do I mean here? When we talk about a 10% uh, land devoted to high diversity landscape features, we take into account how much of the European landscape is already promoting this. So instead of considering a 10% shock, we acknowledge that already now in 2020, there's 4.7% of the area devoted to this high diversity landscape features and the shock is only 5%. And the same we do for organic farming. And last, we do a representation of the CAP, both as the CAP stands today, and also, as the CAP could stand in the future, if member states in the CAP strategic plans were to <clears throat> play up to the ambition that the Commission is requested in the legal proposal. So, what does our analysis tells us? Let's recall the graphs that are in the conclusion section of our report. Achieving the targets will deliver significant environmental benefits. We can mitigate up to one fifth of total greenhouse gas emissions of the agricultural sector by meeting the targets of the farm-to-fork strategy that we have analyzed. And this can be further increased to nearly 30% if the cap is implemented in a way that addresses the challenges ahead of us. For ammonia emissions and nutrient surplus reductions, the numbers are similar. And uh, some analysis that we have been uh, doing lately show that these reductions are not only good for the environment. The reduction on ammonia emissions leads to a reduction on particulate matter and an increase in the quality of the air we breathe that could save 16,000 premature deaths at the European level. So we are not talking (coughs) about small numbers of benefits to human health. The impacts on production that are reported in the report should not come as a surprise. De facto, when we chose to focus on these four targets, we are just modeling a lower input agriculture. And when you have a lower input agriculture, you have a lower production. All models more or less show that the impacts will be between 10 and 15%, depending on how you define your assumptions. And the biggest uh, unknowns relate to what are the yields if we stop using the most the riskiest plant protection products. We have some discrepancies across the different models that have been used and the results reported, but uh, in general, our results are normally at the lower bound. And for sure, we don't see a change on the net trade position of the European Union in any of the agricultural products that is reported, at least in the most extreme scenarios of some of the studies. We also show that putting the money where our objectives are. That is, subsidizing with the cap technologies that facilitate adapting to these new targets can reduce the impacts in production significantly. The same way we increase the environmental benefits, we reduce the impacts on production. We are working further on developing our models and showing that in some cases, our results are an upper bound because we are not capable of capturing alternative technologies to improve the management of nitrogen in the regions. One last minute to mention what our models do not capture. There has been a lot of debate about the fact that our environmental benefits fail the integrity test. That is, we have emission leakage. But as Gian has mentioned, we are assuming that the EU acts alone. Our colleagues from the USDA Model some situations where the rest of the world also follows the EU in this transition to sustainable food systems. But in our study, the efficiency in terms of greenhouse gas emissions of the rest of the world remains frozen. And that means that our uh, leakage uh, estimates might be probably an overestimate. We also, for some of the policies that we are modeling, focus on a very restrictive approach, for example, we consider that the yield gap between organic and conventional agriculture is gonna remain the same for the next decade. And one would think that if we are focusing on promoting organic agriculture, there would be an increase on the efficiency of organic agricultural production. Just by focusing on not the median uh, gap between organic and uh, conventional agriculture, but taking the 25% best organic farms we see that this yield gap is substantially reduced and in some cases, it even disappears. We are also reporting higher prices for food, which is also not coming as a surprise because we are decreasing supply with demand more or less constant. However, we believe that some of the other targets can dampen the impacts on food prices. This is particularly so for the reduction in food waste, whatever the amount food waste reduction actually is, or the shift to more plant-based uh, diets. So to respond to the title of our event, what does the analysis and the data tell us about the farm-to-fork strategy and its implications for the agricultural sector? I would say that first, we have seen that model works. We see that when we input a reduction of input use in agriculture, we get a reduction in production. Second, we have seen the the size of the challenge that as economic modelers we are facing when we try to model the full transition to sustainable food systems. And last, I think that as a criticism to uh, to us as scientists, we might have taken the low hanging fruits by using our model for what we know best. But as scientists, we need to gear up our game to capture what is more challenging. Disregarding the agricultural part of the Green Deal based on our results might be reading those results in a very restrictive way. We know that we don't capture all effects, especially we are missing the positive feedbacks of the increased quality of our environment on agricultural production, which is the objective of these strategies, to recover biodiversity levels in the European Union. and we should also be wary about how accurate our estimates are. To close my initial statement, I will say that just because there's light under the street lamp, that doesn't mean that we will find our wallet there, especially if we lost it, if we lost it somewhere else. Thanks again for this opportunity and happy to engage in a discussion that promises to be very interesting.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Jesus. I like that analogy there at the end regarding the streetlight. And uh, it's a very researcherly summing up there that you've done. Uh, There's still more work to done. We never know everything. Jason, let me turn to you and get your perspective on on what sort of different methodologies are you using in the US? Where is there a gap? What could we learn from each other, for example?
3: Great. So uh, many thanks for having me. Um, so, I have prepared a couple of slides um, to just summarize my points. Uh, the first uh, first slide covers uh, basically um, what we have done so far. And then the next couple of slides talk a, a little bit more in detail about the ERS report, our EU adoption scenario, which is perhaps more comparable to the other work that we're looking at today. So myself and my co-authors have uh, done some work in this area. As you can see, Mm -hmm. um, we published this ERS report last November that looked at three scenarios that varied the adoption of the EU farm to fork and biodiversity strategies that we considered. So the first scenario uh, is that EU only adopting uh, the strategies. Uh, We looked at a second scenario that says, Well, what if some countries who depend on the EU as a destination for their agricultural exports also adopt uh, the strategies? And the third scenario says what happens if every country in the world were to adopt the same strategies as the EU. And we focused on a variety of results. uh, So we had some market impacts that's looking at production prices and trade. We looked at global food security and we looked at food prices and farm income. After this work was published, we got some feedback from economists and policymakers in the EU saying that we oversimplified some topics or we missed um, some topics. So subsequent work has uh, sought to address some of those deficiencies. And the highlights basically just show um, how this relates back to that original ERS report. So a couple months ago, we published an article Uh, in this journal called Applied Economics Policy and Perspectives that basically says, well, can productivity save us from these market impacts that we estimated in the ERS report? So that one basically calculates how much productivity is necessary to mitigate the price impacts and compares it to um, past uh, productivity gains in the EU. In addition, we... uh, have an article that's been submitted to a journal. It was also presented at a GTAP conference. So there's a paper if you wanna go find some more information on this, but it basically looks at that middle scenario and it says, well, what happens if some countries voluntarily adopt the standards? So that is um, where we assume that countries who are dependent on the EU as a destination for their agricultural exports, might adopt the standards to keep trade channels open. In this one, we say based on um, comparison of welfare, is a country better off um, adopting the standards and keeping trade channels open, or are they better off having a reduction in their agricultural trade with the EU? And finally, this last piece of work is also an article that has been submitted to a journal and it basically uh, has a detailed look at those global food security impacts that we estimated in the original ERS report. Next slide,
1: please.
3: Uh, So a little bit more information about that EU adoption scenario in our ERS report, and I'm perfectly happy to talk about any of the other scenarios. Um, As Jesus mentioned, there are many aspects of the farm-to-fork and biodiversity strategies. Um, They considered four, we also considered four, Uh, many of them are the same, um, but you can see basically listed here that we considered the reduction in pesticides, antimicrobial fertilizer usage, and that's um, land and um, agricultural usage, which relates back to the biodiversity target. Um, So despite my love of Paris and of Liverpool Football Club, we outside the EU are not privy to as much data or information um, regarding the EU, such as we don't really have any exports and cap. Um, So there's a lot of aspects in the JRC report um, that they consider that we um, do not consider in our work. Um, But so some more information on what we did uh, So the model we use is called a computable general equilibrium model. Um, it differs from the model that was used in the JRC study, which is a partial equilibrium model, um, but basically a CGE model has data and equations linking all aspects of the economy in all countries in the world. Uh, the partial equilibrium model used in the JRC study, it was used mainly because my opinion that it has much broader coverage of agriculture, of land in um, EU, Um, so in some instances you want to use a partial equilibrium model if you're mainly concerned about the agricultural sectors. But anyways, uh, specifically the model we use is known as GTAP AEZ. The AEZ stands for agroecological zones, and it basically means that there's an ex- explicit accounting of land use in the data in the model. So, corn cannot be grown in Antarctica, for example. And so, we use this model for our production price and trade impacts that I showed on the last slide. Um, some other work that we did in terms of uh, using the data in the model in GTAP fertilizer, pesticides, and antimicrobials are included in one broader sector called uh, chemicals. So we did some work to disaggregate them so we can explicitly account for those targets. In addition, the database uh, that we used was set to 2014. So we did some work to update it to 2020. So the other model that we used is called the International Food Security Assessment Model. And this is a model that is at ERS. It's a demand-driven model and it calculates the uh, change in food security for 76 poorest countries in the world. Um, it's a demand-driven model in that it takes uh, the changes in prices and GDP from GTAP and it calculates how much would global food security change based on those estimates. Next slide, please. So here I just present uh, the results from our EU-only adoption scenario in that ERS report. That is perhaps most comparable to the JRC study. So, as you can see, as Jesus mentioned, if you're reducing inputs into agricultural production, you are more than likely going to get a response and that production will fall. Uh, our model indicates that for total agriculture, uh, there's a 12% reduction in production. And if you have less products available on the market, uh, you of course, we'll have an increase in prices and the model estimates an increase of 17%. Um, Model indicates that the EU would have a slight increase in imports, um, but a much bigger decrease in agricultural exports. Uh, We also calculate the change in farm income, which is simply the difference between production and prices. So as you could see, it's negative here. So even though there's an increase in prices that farmers are capturing, the loss in production outweighs that. Uh, we also estimated the increase in food cost. This is per person per year in the EU at $153. And the decrease in GDP of $71 billion. For the US and for basically all other countries in the world who Um, In this scenario, we assume do not have those input reductions. There's a slight increase in total agricultural production. So for the U.S., it's shown zero here, but it's about four-tenths of a percent. Um, There's a slight increase in agricultural production for most countries as they try to respond to the loss in EU products in the global market. There's an increase in uh, U.S. prices, basically as we're exporting more products to the EU. Farm income in the. US is estimated to increase basically because both production and prices is increasing. Food cost is about a third what it is in the EU, as you can see, 5% increase in prices versus 17% increase in prices it leads to a lower increase in total food cost and there's a slight decrease in US GDP so for the world, this uh, 1% decrease is basically the amount of production lost for the EU. So other countries, although they have an increase in agricultural production, our model indicates they are not able to replace that which um, has been lost from the EU. And so there's a 1% decrease in production. Prices increase because there's less product available on the global markets. Model indicates a decrease in total um, global agricultural trade, basically due to the loss in EU products. Um, there's a slight increase in farm income and food cost. Uh, in this instance, we have a food insecurity number, so, the International Food Security Assessment Model. It does not have data on the EU and U.S., so we don't have an indicator of food security for those regions, but we do have a measure of food insecurity globally, and the model indicates that would increase by $22 million. And as you can see, the decrease in global GDP, estimated $94 billion is a good amount, is attributable to the EU. Uh, so basically, just in closing, I'd like to say... Uh, primary reason why we did this work was to get a conversation started and as we're all here today we did get a conversation started and uh, i'm happy to uh, prolong that conversation
0: well thank you very much jason and we very much appreciate you getting up to talk to us today on the other side of the atlantic um thank you very much for that johan let me turn to you uh, for your presentation and your opening remarks
4: Thank you for inviting us and uh, giving us the opportunity to share our uh, uh, results with you. Uh, we had um, um, a project commissioned by CropLife, in uh, Europe and CropLife International, together with a number of other uh, European stakeholders in which we have assessed, explored the impacts of the fountry Fox strategy and biodiversity strategies on crop protection. So uh, when we move to the uh, slides, uh, we can see Uh, uh, on the next slide, um, how we have uh, uh, focused on uh, four main objectives uh, and turning them into four scenarios. So in our first scenario, we have combined the two objectives on the reduction in use and risk of pesticides and the use of hazardous pesticides. In the second scenario, we have included the two objectives on nutrient use, focusing on the nutrient losses and the reduction in the use of fertilizers. In the third scenario, we have uh, assessed organic agriculture uh, compared to the conventional situation in the reference situation, so not focus, not uh, applying the other objectives on organic production. And we have a combined uh, scenario, the objectives on the reduction in the use of pesticides and the objectives on nutrients in scenario four, and also included the 10% agricultural aside, uh, um, which are uh, the 10% on uh, the highland diversity landscape features. So um, when uh, in our approach, which is illustrated on the next slide, we have uh, started at a farm level analysis. Uh, We have conducted um, 25 case studies focusing on 10 crops and seven uh, member states, uh, asking uh, local experts uh, employed at uh, research stations and university to assess uh, the consequences of those uh, four scenarios and the six objectives um, at farm level for a typical farm, focusing on the parameters, yield loss and quality loss, and also provide us with some background information, which enables us to interpret the results. And we have made use of those uh, uh, results from farm level to scale up to macro level, focusing on the changes in the production volume, prices, international trade, Additional land, which is needed for compensation of the production decline in the uh, European Union, so uh, reduced exports and uh, increased imports. And when we look at the results uh, presented on the next slide uh, from uh, the farm level, focusing on the scenario one, two, and four, uh, we see it uh, uh, for the case studies. Um, in the first scenario, um, it can have uh, a significant yield loss. So uh, we have reported uh, um, yield losses from uh, 0 to 30 percent in scenario one. Uh, regarding the reduction of pesticide use, we have uh, reductions uh, reported from 2 to 25 percent as a consequence of the objectives on fertilizer use and nutrient losses. And when we combine them and also included 10 percent um, on the high landscape, uh, high diversity landscape features, we have uh, a reduction uh, of the yields uh, reported from 7 to 50%. Uh, What we also have observed in our studies at uh, at farm level is that um, the the impacts of those objectives for permanent crops uh, such as grapes, apples, or live citrus are higher than for annual crops like oilseed, rapeseed, wheat, maize, and sugar beets. And the reason for this is that um, in permanent crops, there are less options to reduce the impacts than in annual crops. And also uh, there's no change of crops. So the pest and diseases can stay in the fields and in the uh, the crops itself. Uh, we also have paid attention to the quality impacts uh, explored in our studies. So uh, examples are uh, that uh, due to the reduction of the pesticide use, uh, the peels can be affected, storability can be uh uh, affected or um, the content such as protein level in wheat can also be affected by those objectives. Uh, when we go to the next slide and focus on organic production, uh, what we have seen is uh, what we have asked our experts also to uh, to apply, um, to, uh, uh, to fill in the spraying scheme, uh, which has also been, uh, um, we, uh, we have been able to measure the impact all this parallel scheme by the Harmonized Risk Indicator 1, which is uh, the methodology used in the European uh, Union to monitor the progress of the um, the realization of the objective for reduction of pesticide use. And we see that uh, also in um, in southern member states for permanent crops, um, pesticides like sulfur, sulfur and especially copper has been used, which is a candidate for substitution. Um, so, um, the consequence can mean that, for some cases, when we have observed these uh, higher values of the average risk indicator for organic production, this will create an adverse uh, incentive for moving to uh, organic production. Um, so these are the main uh, uh, evidence I want to, to, to illustrate. We also have um, assessed the consequences of those uh, scenario at, uh, at, 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 at macro level. And uh, when we look at uh, scenario 1, 2, and 4, uh, we uh, and we focus on the reduction in production volume, we see on average a 10 to 20% reduction in the production uh, produced volume of the products. And in some cases, it's close to zero, but in other cases, it's almost uh, 30%. So uh, in general, all these are in line with the results presented by both JRC and USDA. Uh, so thank you for um, giving me the opportunity to share some initial uh, results with you.
0: Thank you very much, Johan. Thank you for that. And uh, your, your slides as well. Excellent there as well. Thank you so much. I think we've seen an awful lot of activity on the chat. A lot of people very interested in our conversation today. So I'm going to jump straight in with a question from Cohn De Kayser, who has asked about the question of EU competencies in terms of what the EU can do. Um, we know this is always a question that comes up in these Brussels debates where we're trying to see something happening at a pan-EU level and then we always hear this phrase, that's a member state competency. But Cohn is asking, the EU has less competency to change diet choices. How much can or will the farm to fork change diets and can we model this? Jesus, maybe I could put that to you first.
2: Okay, uh I will focus into the modeling and not so much into how much can the EU or not uh, impose changes on, on on diets. That is more my area of expertise. So basically, uh, if we believe that there's going to be a change because of the implementation of a more sustainable food systems approach to more sustainable diets, we would see two things. First, that a sustainable diet should be based on sustainable products so the products that would come into the market would have lower environmental footprints de facto helping to the achievement of the four targets that we have modeled which are basically use of inputs that are considered to have a negative environmental impact and second a shift from products not versions of the same product but to categories of product that are supposed to have a lower environmental footprint. And for that, also for health reasons, it's advocated that our diets should move towards more plant-based solutions. And as we see, most of the impacts that we see, that are more exacerbated in our results refer to livestock products. So by shifting diets <clears throat> towards more plant-based products, we would see that the price impacts that we are reporting would be lower.
0: Thank you, Jesus. Uh, Jason, I mean, I want to talk to you as well about methodologies. Uh, Do you see striking differences between the different blocks, between the U.S. and the EU?
3: Uh, In terms of the model that we used and the model that they used? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, the model that they use has much more information on agricultural sectors. Um, And there's been some work... Uh, integrating um, Capri with uh, GTAP, so you sort of get that uh, economy-wide effects and make sure and capture all linkages uh, throughout the supply chain and with global economies. Um, and there's been uh, there's a background paper by Wolfgang Britz, uh, who helped build the Capri model, and Roman Kini, who is at Purdue and who works with GTAP, talking about some differences. So. I believe they talked about, you know, a lot of the assumptions are similar, such as Armington elasticity of trade, um, and basically it all comes down to how the trade-off between how well you want to capture land at the nuts two level, um, like uh, the JRC did, versus perhaps capturing more of that global impact, like uh, what you might get from GTAP.
0: Well, thank you. And I want to use that as a jumping off point uh, for uh, Johan for another question from our audience. Mazali Aguiar has asked whether different methodologies can better take into consideration cumulative effects um, and if you've got a view on what's best in that point.
4: Thank you. Um, we have already both uh, both uh, when we look at the objectives, we have separated the pesticides and nutrients um, uh, apart, and, and the cumulative effects we have combined them also with the set aside. So that's I think the the, the main element uh, because all the objectives have been uh, will be applied uh, cumulatively, and so these are uh, the effects uh, which we uh, present um, and which we will emphasize. Um, Uh, Ideally, we would also have included uh, organic production and also uh, in in a scenario, but that's a little bit more difficult because when we include uh, organic production uh, together with the other um, uh, objectives in one scenario, which we include all those objectives, we should also have uh, an idea to what extent the shift to organic production would reduce um, the objectives, for for, for conventional farmers to reduce their pesticide use because we can assume that organic production has a lower uh, environmental impact. So the shift from organic production to conventional production will reduce uh, the the level of reduction for conventional uses. But we also have some uh, case studies in which we observe quite uh, some pesticide use even in organic production. So it's not able to combine them in one final cumulative scenario.
0: Thank you, Jesus. Let me come to you. I believe you have something to add to this.
2: Yes, uh, here we are actually seeing synergetic effects between the targets because uh, when you run the individual targets one by one and you add up the impacts that you find, they are much bigger than when you run the four scenarios the four targets simultaneously because just by increasing the area left uh, for high <clears throat> for high diversity landscape features, you are reducing the mineral uh, nitrogen use. You are reducing the plant protection product use. And the same is happening also in organics. We are focusing on cost. We were not uh, as lucky as uh, Johan to have a very detailed uh, plot level analysis or expert based uh, assessment of plot level impacts. So basically in organics, we see a 100% reduction on plant protection product uh, synthetic use. So these um, targets work hand by hand. So when we listen to this uh, need to do cumulative uh, assessments, they assume that by just focusing on one, you are missing the overall picture. The factor here, when you focus in the overall picture, you get better results than just adding the individual targets one by one.
0: Thank you, Jesus. Um, I'm seeing some more questions come in. One actually that seems to be leading on a little bit, uh, Johan, from what you said. Uh, Paul-Henri Lava is asking whether the 25% organic land target will lead to intensification in the 75% remaining to compensate. Uh, Jason, not specifically on that, but do you see a trade-off when we hear these sorts of targets in one area that result in, in other consequences in a different area? That one to you, Jason.
3: Oh, sorry. I <laughs> thought you started off with Johan. My apologies. Uh, yeah, so we didn't consider organics um, in our work, um, we knew the target, but we didn't have uh, information on um, if there's going to be applied universally across all EU uh, members, if it's going to apply across all um, products. Uh, so we didn't consider it. But I think you can make the case um, that if you do have a response, you know, making 25% organic production in a country like. Uh, Spain that might not have as much as Austria, then you might get more intensification in that other 75%. And there was a point made in one of our presentations by an undersecretary who was a crop scientist who said, you know, a a lot of these uh, practices that are gonna have to come back into place are gonna revolve around tillage. And, you know, right now you have no-till which helps capture more carbon. But, you know, if you're not using um, fertilizers and pesticides in as much amount, you might have to actually have more invasive tillage practices, which could actually have a negative effect on the environment.
0: Thank you, Jason. Johan, as I mentioned at the beginning, you touched on this, but would you like to expand a little bit more on this question, please?
4: Yes, when I look at uh, this question and, and and ask for what are the consequences if there would be an expansion of the area under co- organic production to twenty five percent, it will also uh, lead to a reduction of uh, the supply in that country because uh, the yield level of organic production is significantly lower than um, uh, than of of uh, conventional production. So uh, there will be a reduced supply uh, and a consequence if the uh, uh, uh the demand for for food will be the same there will be also um uh demand for 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 additional food uh produced elsewhere and that also crea- creates a great trade-off um there are no additional policies that uh, additional land elsewhere in the world will be uh used to to fill in that gap so from that perspective i see not uh, uh, a incentive for intensification of the commercial production uh, without any um, Uh, additional policy, uh, but uh, additional land use for filling that gap.
0: Thank you. Um, Looking again through uh, some of our questions, um, we have one directly, uh, Jesus, for you, which is, do you plan to add more sensitivity analysis to your model to tackle some aspects, for example, a change in consumption? Quite a specific question with with regard to your report.
2: Yes, uh, so we finished this study when we saw that further developments would just mean that the study would never see the light. So it was better to show what we had than just keep on improving the model. But indeed, we have plans, as I've mentioned, to try to use uh, an improved version of the model that will allow to better represent some of the targets that we are putting forward specifically the nitrogen surplus reduction. We would like also to undertake a more um, nuanced analysis using more uh, a spread of potential impacts. I mentioned um, the organic yield gap. We could consider that the organic yield gap could reduce. We could also use different approaches to the amount of um, yield that is at risk when you reduce by 50% the use of plant protection products. And indeed, we could consider some tweaks into the demand side, focusing on uh, eventual shifts on diet, the 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 model that we've used uh, has been also used to simulate impacts of changing diets. And that has been uh, presented, I think, at the midterm outlook by our colleagues um, here also in Seville. And uh, we could also try to implement the changes that could come from our reduction on food waste. That means that we could expand our coverage of the uh, policy initiatives that are captured in the strategies. We would still be far away from capturing the full picture, but we would be getting closer to better understanding what's the uh, transition in food systems for the agricultural system, uh, sector in the, in the EU.
0: Thank you um, for, for answering that. I want to ask um, another question, There's one coming in here from Tommaso Ferrando, who is asking whether the methodologies differentiate between the impact on large-scale and small-scale farming. Uh, Johan, can you take that first and I'll come to each of you in turn.
4: Yes, um, in our approach, we have asked for 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 a typical farm uh, in each uh, of the regions. So, uh, for, for uh, we 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 have asked the experts to 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 choose a, a representative region for production, and then look at a typical farm. And what we see is that there are quite some differences in our case studies for uh, for large scale, small scale farms. So, in some cases. They have uh, uh, really small um, uh, small farms. For example, uh, all lives in Italy, and are the cases that are really uh, large farms uh, um, selected as um, uh, a farm for which uh, uh, objectives for which the objectives have been assessed. And so, we also have been able to explore qualitatively the the differences between small and large scale farms. That we so, for example, small farms have less technology which can be applied for uh, compensating. Um, uh, the effects of the pesticide use reduction, for example. So we see uh, differences in, uh, between those uh, uh, small-scale and large-scale farms.
0: Thank you very much. Jason, from your perspective, um, what is the difference in the impact between large-scale and small-scale farming, and how do models appropriately measure that?
3: Yes, yeah, so um, in GTAP, there is this representative farm in um, the typical standard GTAP, um, but you can do work to incorporate additional information um, and look at distributional impacts. It's something called micro-macro modeling that uh, one of my co-authors, Maro Sivanic, um, did a lot of at World Bank. So you get survey data and you put it pair it with the GTAP data, so you get you know, some sort of big aggregate result. But then you actually get you can get impacts by uh, different wealth deciles for farms. Um, it's something that we've done at ERS uh, using um, data that we have from a annual survey that we do, um, but it's something uh, in order to incorporate it in our model, we would need the same sort of survey data from the EU, but it could be done.
0: Thank you. And, Jesus, your take on that question and perhaps even expand a little bit more into into what we see in the differences.
2: So, again, uh, as Jason mentioned, uh, our model also considers a representative farm. So, basically, for each of the EU regions, we have a a farm that allocates land and resources across competing uses. Uh, If at some stage the model had a farm type layer, that has been discontinued. It could be uh, brought back to life to see if there's really such, a, such an impact. But as Jason said, the data needed came from a survey that is quite old, so we will be probably capturing uh, outdated farm structure. However, uh, we need to understand that uh, the model that will give the answers to all questions is not there and a competitive advantage that the unit where i work uh, has is that it also uses a farm level model so it's not big and small farms but rather all the farms for which there's data in the farm accountancy data network that this model could also be used to tackle the heterogeneous impact of the strategies however one has to take into account that the targets are not set at the farm level. So there's quite some work there to see how you arrange this heterogeneous impact among the universe of farms that we have in each region and the fact that the targets are set at a higher level, in this case, for the EU.
0: I also have a question in, I guess, a similar sort of uh, vein is how do these models account for a changing environment? Are the consequences of climate change, for example, do they result in a change in the baseline? Johan, perhaps you could take that question first.
4: Uh, we have not explicitly especially addressed these uh, these changes in our models. So uh, climate change, uh, it's specific circumstances and we have not, uh, in our, our approach, we have not addressed it specifically because it's, uh, uh, in, in our approach at, at farm level towards 2030, it's it's um, uh, a really short period. What we, but what we also uh, what we did is that we and also uh, the expert uh, commented on that is that the consequences of uh, the objectives, especially for a reduction of pesticide use, is under the uh, changing climate uh, that there is also um, an increased risk for um, bad weather. And for example, so it's not only that the yield level itself uh, will be uh, reduced, but there is also um, a higher risk for fluctuations of the yield levels. So that's also one of the aspects which is addressed in our studies.
0: Well, thank you for that. I'll, I'll put the same question to Jason and to Jesus as well. Uh, Jason, perhaps you first, because I see there's actually several questions on this. Another, uh, another person asking whether the models include possible effects of global warming or climate change. So I guess this is something that clearly people are considering. Is needs to be, if you like, baked into some of these methodologies.
3: Yeah. So almost as soon as we've released this report, one of the um, feedbacks was we're not including productivity, um, which is the, was the purpose of that APP study. Um, and since then, uh, we have been doing some work at the Economic Research Service looking basically at that question, how does climate change affect uh, productivity? Um, so we've done, uh, so for example, my intern this summer looked at how changing different conditions could affect corn and soybean. Yields in the US, and it's something that um, is also on the agenda for USDA administration. We have a program called Aim for Climate um, that was unveiled at the UN uh, Food World Food Summit, and it basically says, um, and this is perhaps uh, the divergence with the EU, is that uh, productivity could improve the amount of food that we're producing. Um, So within USDA and some other countries who are part of this aim for climate, uh, there's a big focus on ensuring that productivity stays constant, if not better, uh, with changing climate conditions. Um, So short answer, uh, there's no consideration of a changing climate on productivity in this actual work, um, but there's plenty of work ongoing and plenty of work that could be done um, because it is an important point.
0: Well, thank you. And, Jesus, the same question to you in terms of uh, integrating the impact of climate change or global warming in these models. And I'm going to add in a question from Anzoi Pressure, which is slightly the same topic, but even further. I mean, is there a positive feedback loop from improved ecosystem uh, that could be built in as well?
2: OK, I'll jump into that. I think that climate change has been dealt by Jason and Johan. But one of the reasons why the Commission takes action is the fact that it's uh, we acknowledge a declining trend on biodiversity and ecosystem services, our baselines, our projections into the future, do not take into account this. And if we believe what the International Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services says, we are putting at risk the productivity of our agricultural sector by not declining this um, this trend so when we manage to include into our models, not only land, labor and capital as production factors, but also as biodiversity, we could see that we are showing that it's a decrease in production compared to a business as usual can actually mean an increase in production into a business as usual that has a declining productivity impact due to reduced biodiversity and ecosystem services.
0: Thank you very much. Um, So Johan, did you want to come back into that in in the possibilities of building in a sort of, if you like, dynamic feedback loop on positive outcomes?
4: Um, It has not, well, we we have not uh, focused on on climate change, not on on, on the greenhouse gas emission, because we focus on plant production, so we have not addressed uh, the positive impacts in our studies.
0: Okay, um, let's see. I have another question um, coming in here. Um, what's next for this for the assessment of impact by the JRC? Juan Sagarna is asking that. His
2: okay. As as I mentioned before, we want to improve some of the limitations that we have shown, but we also want to be sure that. Um, <clears throat> that the way that we are improving these limitations is sound. Uh, When I mentioned that we were capturing the low hanging fruits, we are also capturing the well-tested and well-accepted by our peers' developments. Some of the things that we would like to include into our models will take time to develop. And uh, I don't know if the timing of the scientific development and the timing of the policy decisions will be synchronous. My experience is that most of the time it's not.
0: Well, I, I think we, uh, we appreciate your experience there and I'm sure uh, people would echo that feeling as well. I mean, what, Jesus, then do we do to, to actually, you know, we hear a lot of talking about sort of evidence-based policy making. What do, do people in your position do to feed that back into the policymaking?
2: Okay, we try to be as transparent As possible. So we put forward our assumptions and our limitations, but we also signal our results. And then you can take those signals as uh, different ideas. I mean, you can take those as uh, things that will happen yes or yes. I tend to look at them as showing the areas where we need to improve the way we make policy in order to leave no one behind. Remember that the transition that the Green Deal is advocating has this little coda that says that this transition should leave n- no one behind. So our results, what are showing is those sectors of the agricultural uh, activity that might be left behind and those who were additional technology, initial support, additional knowledge should be brought into the field to make sure that the impacts that we are reflecting in our results do not become reality by 2030.
0: Thank you. And Jason, are you seeing the same thing on the other side of the Atlantic?
3: Yeah, so uh, for us, like I mentioned, a big focus has been on the impacts, uh, potential impacts of climate change on productivity and production, um, and how uh, innovation could improve. those changes. Um, so, you know, we are happy to have gotten the conversation started uh, on farm to fork, um, but defer to JRC and others within Europe who have uh, more information regarding that. Um, so, our focus is perhaps more on uh, global, uh, what's happening globally right now.
0: Thank you. That's a, a very nice jump off point for another question from Emir Aykus asking raising simply the issue of food change and whether there's been a lot of meaningful results on this because obviously uh, is there a specific role for producers organizations um, along the, the food chain uh, johan have you looked at this at all
4: in our studies we have not looked at, at the changes in the food chain but uh, of course we uh, we will face such consequences uh, in in the food chain uh, because if uh, value chain partners um will be confronted in in in, um, uh, in the chain with a uh, shortage of supply they have to 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 anticipate it on those consequences looking at the sourcing strategy looking at the sustainability uh strategy um in such a way that they also um uh, get, that they guarantee sufficient supply of a good uh, quality um in the future and also align their sustainability strategy together with uh, the objectives of the uh, european ReDeal and fabric for strategy and it also you. For example, if you if you look at, at imports uh and, and you are f- f- uh, forced to to have uh, the focus on imports so what are the regions from the world uh where you want to to import from
0: absolutely i mean jason do you see that there's linkages between the eu and the us with regard to Resilience of supply, food supply chains that we are seeing post-pandemic, and the need to model and, and become more aware of those is as a future-looking project.
3: Yeah, so obviously um prices in globally have been increasing, prices in the US have been increasing. Um, Big part of that is likely due to COVID. But I think it also signals that um, the world has to adapt. Um, There's larger population. There's a greater demand for food. uh, Products are being sourced from other countries more and more. Um, Both the EU and the US are very big countries. So not only do you have to uh, find a place to dock your ship in new york or california but then you have to transport the products um 2 miles perhaps um so i think uh the resilience of the supply chains are being tested now um and countries are being asked uh, difficult questions and you know we'll see uh in the, there's a broad talk about how long these uh food prices are going to stay like this and when is supply chains going to help ease that. Um, So I think, you know, there is work to be done um, looking at uh, where we're bringing products in the competitiveness of agricultural products versus manufacturing. So there's plenty of stories of uh, containers um, being shipped back empty to China um, because they're uh, Producers are looking, companies are looking for higher uh, value products um, versus uh, waiting for the agricultural products to be delivered. Um, so, and you're seeing that with the higher food prices. So, I think um, resilience is being tested. And this is something basically a model uh, we've looked at it in terms of non tariff measures, um, sanitary and phytosanitary measures, um, anything that. It makes it difficult to import products um, and then transport them um, long distances within your own country.
0: Well, thank you. Um, a, a final question to you, Jesus, before I ask each of you to give me your wrap-up, roundup thoughts. Uh, Wilhelm Klumper has asked, what does the JRC study tell us about leakage, carbon and other environmental dimensions and how to deal with leakage? It's uh, it's quite a specific one to, to throw at you late in the debate, but if you could tackle that, I'm sure Wilhelm will be pleased.
2: Okay, so basically what we see is that indeed we have a reduction of production in the European Union and an improvement of our efficiency that provides environmental benefits, mostly as I mentioned in terms of greenhouse gas emission reduction, ammonia emission reduction, and nitrogen surplus um, levels. However, as we see that part of that uh, production reduction in the EU is uh, just imported, the integrity of our reduction is reduced. In the worst case scenario, so that is when we have no alignment of the cap with the new targets that are being set up in these strategies. The leakage is nearly two thirds. So each uh, out of uh, each three um, tons of uh, CO2 that we save to come back. However, when we are putting the cap to work for our objectives, The leakage is reduced. It's still significant. It's still nearly 47, 48%. So one in two is leaked. But here comes the issue of that we are not taking into account the rest of the world also improving the environmental performance of their agriculture, be it with farm to fork targets or be it with something else. But we cannot just think that the um, environmental efficiency of agricultural production in the rest of the world is going to stagnate. So, somehow, leakage will also reduce when our trading partners, when our, when the rest of the world also improves its efficiency. So, there's leakage. The leakage is reduced when we get our policies aligned with our uh, aspirational targets, and that leakage is probably overestimated because we are failing to account for what the rest of the world is doing also as part of the commitments to the Paris Agreement.
0: Well, thank you, gentlemen. I think uh, we've just got uh, about 10 minutes or so left, so there's probably enough time for you to give me uh, both your roundup and your thoughts, but also anything that you feel we need to look at for future action. Uh, Where does there need to be more research? Where does there need to be more coherence, more investment, or indeed more joined up areas of, of collaboration? Johan, um, I'm going to start with you to, to give me your closing remarks. We started off with hearing about these reports. Have have your views, f- hearing from the other panellists, developed or coalesced?
4: Well, what we also have uh, discussed, we have our limitations in our approach, so uh, uh, demarcations, uh, focusing on, on specific objectives. Uh, so it's it's very good to to explore uh, how these uh, are aligned with the, with the other objectives of so fund the fund's strategy on on diet chains on waste reduction etc. What are consequences on that? Um, and also what I I see is is that there is a lot of uh, still a, uh, potential for improvement. And we see uh, see the the case studies which we have conducted. We see a lot of differences. So a comparison of that code to, to the details will uh, will help us to. Um, to uh, to 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 get ideas for improvement uh, in, in such a way that we will be able to at least partly compensate the yield reductions. Um, and also, I think it's also good to to connect all uh, the three studies to look at uh, the differences. Uh, as far as I can see, uh, the results are quite consistent with each other. Um, and and and. Um, uh, the sum up of our uh our messages when we combine them i think it's, it's really that there will be a significant yield reduction so a lot of work to do uh to uh um um to to to, to enable uh the european commission to realize these objectives while also um, safe uh, also helping the farmers to have a sufficient income to reduce uh the total food production in the world to uh, safeguard food uh, security for example
0: Thank you. Uh, Jason, then your final closing thoughts. I think uh, we hear from Johan that there's more work to do. There's always more work to do. Um, Jason.
3: Well, I would just like to point out, I don't know how well thought out it was, but everyone on this panel's initials are J and B. Um, And in particular for uh, (laughs) Johan, Jesus, and myself, (laughs) uh, all all, all J's are pronounced differently. So even though you have, you know, one common issue, you have three different ways of going about it. And I think it's very symbolic of uh, the work that was done. Um, you know, we came in uh, wanting to be a first mover, get the, par- get the uh, conversation started. I almost said get the party started, um, but maybe we did that as well. Um, and look at global impacts. And, um, you know, since then, uh, JRC came out with a study that was certainly more in-depth regarding EU-related issues, and this was definitely needed. And now, Johan, um, you know, they're coming out with uh, more uh, country and product-level studies. So I think, uh, much like our names, um, the three approaches are basically, you know, very uh, Different ways of getting at, looking at the same type of question, but there's commonalities, um, similar results, uh, and so I'll leave it at that.
0: Well, thank you. Yes, I only moderate people who have the same initials as me. Um, Jesus, let me leave it to you to wrap up uh, your closing thoughts. Where do we need to go next? Um, what does policy need to do next? Um, and give me your crystal ball view of the future.
2: I can say here that we have brought forward three analyses that complement each other. I mean, I would have loved to have uh, Johan's data on specific impacts for specific crops in specific areas. I would have loved also to have some of the details for the productivity impacts for antimicrobials that the had. And I guess that they would have liked to have the detailed representation of the sector and of the cap that we were bringing into the field. But the three of us are supply models, production models in the end. We are missing many of the actors that are going to be key for the transition that we are going to see in the next decades. You mentioned the food chain, how are other agents down the chain going to work? How are food processors, how are retailers, and how are consumers gonna react to these targets? We need also to think about how technological development is gonna shape itself. Jason already said that in the first version of the model that they used, they had frozen technology. They have now seen how many years of technological development would be needed to offset the impacts that we are projecting, but that's also based on the past technological development. And we need to take into account that when a problem becomes a priority for all um, stakeholders, all governments across the planet, we see things that were thought that were impossible begin to happen. And if I take the analogy of climate change, at some stage, 15 years ago, to make steel, you had to emit a lot of CO2. And now we have on the, nearly at the end of the technology pipeline, nearly CO2 free uh, steel. So the impossible can be possible. And I think that we also applies to our models. We think that encompassing all the initiatives that are put forward (coughs) in the strategies is probably impossible. The models that we are used were created with a purpose, sometimes to project markets into the future to assure certainty to players, sometimes to inform trade um, negotiations, sometimes to understand better what the cap reform in 2000 was going to happen. We now need to do the same investment and use the creativity and the resourcefulness of the research community to bring forward models that can respond to the times that they are changing.
0: Thank you very much, Jesus, for wrapping that up for us. And indeed, thank you all, gentlemen, for tackling quite a wide range of questions there today. Obviously, we didn't get a chance to get to them all, and there was a lot of viewers, nearly 700 people joining us today to have a look at this discussion. So we take it that you have indeed enjoyed our scientific dialogue today. We've been looking at these three specific reports. So, of course, it's not quite the same as a policy debate. We're actually looking at uh, real experts in their field. So, thank you again, once again. Again for that. Thank you very much to our audience for all your questions. Remember, you can keep the discussion going using the hashtag EADebates on your social media of choice. Thank you for joining us and have a great evening. Mm-hmm.